Good afternoon, everybody. Sohoraim tovim. It is so good to see you all. And uh, wonderful, so many TBS family members as well as community members. It's good to have you all here. We are honored to have the uh, Community Scholar Program, the Monthly Scholar Program, be hosting it again this year. Um, Ari Katz is the leader of the Community Scholar Program, and such a, a blessing to have you here today as well. Thank you so much. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce, uh, first of all, allow me to introduce myself. I'm Rabbi Heidi Cohen, for those of you who, uh, who don't know me. It's a pleasure to have you all here. Dr. Alec Isaacs, it's such a pleasure to have you here. I've been hearing good things already, and this is only the beginning of the month. So Dr. Alec Isaacs is a scholar at the Shalom Hartman Institute, the Center for Advanced Jewish Studies in Jerusalem. And he serves as the director of SHI's Advanced Beit Midrash program and is a lecturer at the Melton Center for Jewish Education at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem. He is an educational philosopher who is interested in the ways in which ideas can be relevant and meaningful in contemporary Jewish life. In recent years, his research and writing has focused on the implications of Israel for Jewish life and peace. After settling in Israel in 1986, Dr. Isaacs earned his PhD in Jewish history from the Hebrew University. He is a founding member of the Kehilat Shira Hadasha in Jerusalem. I daven there, I love that there. Oh, it's a fabulous synagogue. Um, and has just completed a book entitled Prophetic Peace, which following upon his experience as a combat soldier in the Second Lebanon War, reevaluates the place of peace in Jewish thought. Dr. Isaacs lives in Jerusalem with his wife, Shuli, and their five children. So it is an honor to have you here and to be able to share in this conversation with you today. Your, all of your handouts are here. Would you like me to start passing them out for you? What do I have? Oh, okay, maybe not. <laughs> Let's see. Pass that one out. Okay. Oh, there you go. Uh-huh. And... Yes, you got it right. You're oh, doing good. Fine. Yeah. Okay, fabulous. Okay. So here, good. I'll take both of those. Great. So ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Isaac. Passing those around there. Hello. Hello. It's nice to see you all. And not in the rain. It's my first day of sun since I got here. People have been telling me since I got here, Southern California, the sun shines all the time. And I've been saying, yeah, right. But today, today is just beautiful, glorious, lovely to be here. And thank you very much, Rabbi Cohen, for your wonderful words of welcome. I'm very, very happy to be here, very excited to be here. And very grateful to, to the wonderful hospitality that I've been receiving um, in the community since I arrived. So if it carries on this way, it's going to be a great month. So thank you. Thank you very much. I was wondering if I could cut today's lecture very short. Um, the title is, Does Zionism Have a Future in America? Um, and it occurred to me we could just take a vote. I could ask, does Zionism have a future in America? Those of you who want to say yes, raise your hands. Those of you who want to say no, raise your hands. 
and we'll decide on the majority and say, right, it looks like the yeses have it in this, in this group. Isn't that interesting? Do that again. Does Zionism have a future in America? Isn't that interesting? Is that interesting? I bet, I might be wrong, but I bet that if we had a slightly younger audience, if we had school kids through to people in their mid-20s, maybe mid-30s even, we'd probably see a very different response. Am I right? That's my hunch. Um, and I, I'd like to analyze that a little bit. I'd like to talk about that distinction between the two generations um, and their very, very changing attitudes to Israel um, and how we're supposed to deal with that, what the questions are and how we're supposed to understand them and how we're supposed to deal with that. I said before to Rabbi Cohen that I was intrigued. Maybe I can put you on the spot for a minute. And I was intrigued. I, I, before I came, I'm just warming up. Don't worry, I'll start talking substantively in a minute. <laughs> it's, either, it's, either, it's either anecdotes or jokes at the beginning. It's just to warm up. But as I was um, planning my trip here, so I prepared a whole series of, of, of lecture titles, and I handed them over to Ari, and Ari circulated them around the community, and people took their pick. Why, why this topic? What is it? What is it about the question? Does Zionism have a future in America? What's the question? Why is it an issue? Can we be Zionists and be here in America? And can we create a connection with Israel without necessarily visiting it? These are fundamental questions. Um, I, or I was introduced before by, by Rabbi Cohen as, a, as an educational philosopher. And I, this is, a, I think, a primary educational question. I'd like, to I'd like to talk about it in philosophical terms, in terms of ideas, and not in terms of Jewish sociology in America. It would be fascinating to look at the Jewish sociology in America and analyze it and look at the different trends and the reasons. That's not what I do. But I'd like to start off by referring to, I think, a very important book that was published in the year 2000, some of you might have seen it, by Arnie Eisen, who is now the chancellor of the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, and Stephen M. Cohen, who maybe some of you have read or know of, who is one, I think, one of the leading um, sociologists of American Jewish life. And they published a book called um, The Jew Within. Anyone heard of the book? Anybody seen it? It caused quite a stir, The Jew Within, when it came out in 2000. What they did was they, they took the theory that had been developed by, by Robert Putnam in a, a, a very interesting sociological analysis of, analysis of American society. Um, he wrote a book called Bowling Alone. And what he was really interested in and what he was tracing was the rise of individualism in American society. And the particular phenomenon that he traced was this, this shift from participating in bowling leagues, right? People who would get together with all their buddies and go bowling. Of course, 10-pin bowling, you don't really need to have anybody else around you. You're playing against the machine and, and, and knocking down as many skittles as you can. And the phenomenon that he traced was this phenomenon of people going off on their own and going bowling, bowling alone. And his analysis was that American society was moving into an era of individualism and that the collective identities of communities were starting to crumble. Now, what Steve... Cohen and Arnie Eisen did with this was they tried to apply this model and they took the hypothesis, they asked themselves the question, are Jews in America, in the, as the generational, as we follow the generations down, are they, are they moving away from community? Are they moving away from communal identity? Are they moving away from participation in collective and public 
events and looking towards a much more individualistic and personalized approach to their own Judaism. And of course, when we talk about being Jewish, we talk about being a member of a community. But when people say, I'm not interested in the community, I'm looking for personal meaning. What's the personal take home? How does it affect me? How does it affect the way I live in my home? How does it affect the way I bring up my children? On the one hand, there's a positive side to this, that people are looking to be engaged on a personal level. They're looking to be touched. They want their Judaism to be meaningful for them. But on the other, when something doesn't engage them, when something doesn't apply very immediately to the direct circumstances of their immediate living, to their local experience of what their own lives are all about, they become detached. They become detached particularly from the Jewish communities around them. They become detached from a sense of global purpose. You know, the Jewish community, if we talk about the Jewish community of America, what is that all about? Where is that going? But even more strikingly, they become very, very distanced and very, very detached from this idea of there being another country a long way away where the, 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 the people are very different, the language is different, the mannerisms are different, the music is different, the clothes are different. It's a different world, it's a foreign environment. And for some reason, this place over there in the Middle East is supposed to be an important part of my identity. And that gets even more problematic when I encounter it, and I particularly tend to encounter it where? Where do people meet Israel? On CNN. And the, the Israel that they encounter on CNN is very problematic. So their thesis was, their claim was, that the Jewish community in America and Jewish educators in America are facing a fundamental challenge building community, building collective identity, and most strikingly of all, the biggest stretch of all, is how do we create a connection between Jews in America and Jews and Jews in Israel? How do we give Jews, young Jews, a sense of belonging to a larger community, belonging to a global Jewish community, and having a connection with the state of Israel? These are fundamental educational questions that I think are facing the, the generation of educators today working with the younger generation growing up in America today. Now, it's interesting that the, um, listening to what you said, very interesting, because you, you picked out, I would say, the three things that dominate the strategies. You, you mentioned all three. I've written them down here, and you've said them all as well. Very interesting. There are three things that dominate the strategy for dealing with this issue, and I'm going to question them. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to turn this upside down a little bit. But there are three things which dominate the strategy with which people talk about this issue. Number one, they'll say connection with Israel is something that is there for the strongly affiliated. People who are strongly affiliated to Jewish community will have a sense of collective identity. They'll have a sense of a collective relationship to Israel. That's exception number one to the Jew within rule. Exception number two to the Jew within rule is people who are involved in religious life people who hear about Israel in the synagogues, people who pray and say the prayer for the state of Israel. Maybe there are certain communities where they sing Hatikva in the services. I don't know if you do that here, but there are many, many places where I've seen that, that done. Or people who have a religious education. They open up the Bible. They encounter the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they're wandering around the land of Israel. And the land of Israel is part of what the substance of being Jewish is all about. So they have a connection with Israel. And the third category is people who have a personal 
connection with Israel. So how many of you have a personal connection with Israel? Lots of you do. Isn't that interesting? Some of you perhaps were born in Israel. Some of you have spent time in Israel. Some of you maybe studied for a year in Israel. Or you have relatives in Israel. Or after the Holocaust, perhaps there were families that split up and some of them came to America and some of them went to Australia and some of them went to Israel. So those kinds of personal connections. And the obvious statistic is that in the older generations, these connections are strong. In the younger generations, these connections are weak. So what are we going to do? spend millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars giving Jews, young Jews, personal connections with Israel. Put them on a plane, fly them to Israel, give them a 10-day trip, tell them it's their birthright to have this trip. They go around the country, they fall in love with other Jewish people, hopefully, and they have a great time. They develop a taste for falafel, the advanced ones get into Israeli music, and they have a personal connection, and it really does change their lives. It's very, very powerful. These are very, very powerful experiences. But the question is, the question is, and you mentioned it, you said it, you hit the nail on the head. Can we do this enough? Can we create a critical mass of people who have these kinds of experiences and will then cultivate a personal connection with Israel? And can we make a compelling argument for why that is supposed to be? Why do we need this connection with Israel? The family argument? What possible argument can we make for telling young kids who are interested in their own lives and in their own personal meaning that they need to have a connection with Israel? We put them on planes, we can take them to Spain, we can take them to Mexico, we can take them to all kinds of places where these personal experiences might create for them powerful connections. So this is why I'm asking the question. All I'm doing so far is explaining why I chose the title of this essay. The point that I want to make, the, the idea that I want to put on the table, is that in my humble opinion, qualitative or quantitative Experiences of Israel of this sort, right? multiple experiences of Israel, it's just not enough. We'll never reach the tipping point. We'll never create a critical mass of people who are connected. And what Israel must become is a compelling idea that means something to Jewish people around the world. Israel has to become a compelling idea. Now let's call that idea Zionism. Good name, right? I just made it up on the way over. It's good, right? Zion is a biblical name for Jerusalem. It's cool, right? It'll catch. Let's call that Zionism and ask ourselves the question, does Zionism, the idea of Zionism, does it have a future? Is it compelling for Jewish life in America? Now, before I start answering this question, I'd like to explain historically what I think might be some of the major obstacles that we need to overcome. And when I say historically, I don't want to talk so much now about the history of the state of Israel. I want to talk historically, or even archeologically, about the DNA of the Zionist idea. What is the Zionist idea, and how can we understand it? And has it, has it got what it takes to be compelling for American Jewish life today? And if it doesn't, what do we need to do about it? So I'm going to talk a little bit about Zionist philosophy for a couple of minutes now. All right? 
At any stage along the way, please interrupt me. Ask me a question. If you don't understand what I'm saying, or if I'm contentious, or you disagree with me, or you know better, then please don't hesitate. I like being heckled. I'm Jewish, okay? So please, please feel free. Please feel free to participate and to ask questions. We think of Zionism as this old idea, right, that, that came, came into formation somewhere around, you know, 1870s and the 1880s, and it crystallized in the 1890s, and it got its first official representation in 1896, which I'm sure you all know when Theodore Herzl published an, uh, a public address in the Jewish Chronicle in London that later turned into his first book in 1897, The Jewish State. And we have this, prop we have this proposal of an old new idea, to quote Herzl, that the Jewish people should return to the biblical land of Israel, resettle it, and establish political sovereignty there, and most importantly of all, that doing that would provide the solution to the Jewish question. That was the key point. The Jewish question, however you went about defining it, right? there were primarily two definitions on the table, but Zionism was going to provide one way or the other the answer to the Jewish question. Now this is critical because one of the ways you set up a movement is by fudging the differences so as people can sit together. So we all agreed that we want a Jewish state that would provide an answer to the Jewish question. But there were two very, very different understandings of what the Jewish question was and how the state of Israel was going to provide the answer. There were those who perceived the Jewish question as anti-Semitism. And the Jewish people needed political self-determination and power. And there were those who perceived the Jewish question as the cultural disintegration of Jewish communal life. So the purpose of the Jewish state for them was not political. Now, everybody knows, by the way, about Herzl versus Achad Ha'am. I think the picture was much more complex than that. I think the picture was much more complex than that. Achad Ha'am was perhaps the best known in that school of non-political Zionists. But I'm gonna come back and talk about them a little bit more in a few minutes. But the idea that was dominant the idea that was dominant was the political idea. Political Zionism was that the Jewish state would provide the solution to the Jewish question. However, in order for that to work, and this is critical, this is where it starts getting problematic and people in America will start shifting on their seats and justifiably so. In order for that idea to work, the notion of the state of Israel by definition had to ne negate the legitimacy of Jewish diaspora. Okay, is that a familiar idea? You've heard this one before. Shlilat Hagola is what it's called in Hebrew. That the Jewish state would negate the legitimacy of Jewish diaspora. Now on the one hand, this is very practical and political. All the Jews need to settle in the state of Israel in order for the problem to be solved. And it's only a matter of time before that happens and the Jewish diaspora will disintegrate and disappear because it doesn't have a future anyway. That was the thinking, all right? So, if the, diaspora, if the diaspora continues to exist, political Zionism can't, can't, achieve, can't achieve its goals, right? So clearly, political Zionism is quite problematic when we think about the question, does Zionism have a future in America? The question's a paradox, right? It's, a, it's an oxymoron. How could it have a future in America if the whole point of political Zionism is to disintegrate the Jewish community in America and pack up bags and go elsewhere? But it actually runs much, much deeper than that. 
it runs much deeper than just the political idea that there is no that there is no future for Jewish life in the diaspora. Because the political Zionist movement was more than just, it was more than just an ideological campaign. There was a very, very deep-rooted perspective. And I'd like to share two aspects of that with you. We, I could talk about this for hours, but I'm just gonna share two, because I think they're the two most important and the two most interesting. I'd like to talk about history of Zionism, or, his, or histori Zionist history, Zionist historiography is perhaps a better word for it. And I'd like to talk about Zionist anthropology. Okay, so I'll explain what Zionist anthropology is in just a few minutes. But let's start with Zionist history. The founding figure that we need to talk about was actually the first education minister of the state of Israel. His name was, does anybody know? Ben Sion Dinul was the founding minister of education in the state of Israel. And he was the fella who articulated the idea that Zionism had a whole take on Jewish history. How do we understand the entire Jewish past? That was a question that Ben Sion Dinor believed he could provide an answer to. A little, that, if you've got to think about the period that we're talking about in the, in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s, there were lots of people who thought they could explain everything in the world. Right? Marxists believed that they could explain everything in history because they had a particular template for doing it. Dinor was exactly the same. He came up with the following structure. He said like this, all of the Jews who have survived the diaspora and all of the Jewish communities and the Jewish institutions that have managed to travel across history since the time of the destruction of the temple had a purpose. What was their purpose? The return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel. Now that we know that purpose, everything in Jewish culture can be explained. Let me give you an analogy for this. Have you ever seen those puzzles that they have in kids, in kids um, playbooks? You have a, a picture of a maze and in the middle of the maze there's a piece of paper and on the outside there are four pens and you've got to draw the line between the pens on the outside and find which one leads to the piece of paper. Have you ever seen that? Or, or it can be a mouse and a trap or a mouse and a piece of cheese or whatever it is. If you start from the outside, it's very difficult to find your way. It's very difficult to pick which one of the, which one of the pens on the outside will lead to the piece of paper in the middle. If you start from the middle and work your way back, you get it right every time, okay? So this was Dinor's idea. Now that we know the purpose of Jewish history, it's easy to explain every phenomenon that has taken place in the past. All we need to do is look at the Jewish diaspora for seven phenomena. Number one, where did Jews speak Hebrew? Number two, where was their democracy? Number three, where did they yearn for the land of Israel? His list goes on. I won't go through the whole list with you. But basically what he did was he took the template of the culmination of Jewish life in the state of Israel and used it as a model for explaining survival across Jewish history. In other words, Jews survived in the diaspora because there was a proto-Jewish state in effect in every Jewish community. Now that it's culminated in the full-blown state of Israel, we can negate those partial expressions of Jewish statehood that were the Jewish community. We just collapsed the whole idea of the Jewish community across thousands of years of history into one idea. 
That was Dinor. And by the way, those of you who think that this is um, strange or foreign or unusual, how many of you have visited in Israel? Anyone been to Israel? Anyone been to Tel Aviv University and visited the Diaspora Museum? Benzion Dinor is the philosopher of history who designs the Diaspora Museum. What do you do when you go into the Diaspora Museum? You go in and you're presented with the, with the first scene, is you're presented with the destruction of the Second Temple, and then you see all these Jewish faces, different faces, different colors, people from all over the world, and there's one big question looming across Jewish history, how come we survived? And then you go from pocket to pocket to pocket to pocket, and it shows you institution after institution after institution after institution, each of which in its own way contributed to the survival of the Jewish people across the diaspora. And by the time you've finished visiting them all, you see how they have all culminated in the Zionist idea. And once you've seen how they culminate in the Zionist idea, there's this path at the end, you know what I'm talking about? You've been there? This path that goes up, up. It's a, little, it's a steep path, and at the end, there's a flag of the state of Israel. And you start hearing Hatikva in the background, and you just want to burst into tears. And you, you reach this emotional crescendo. I think that today, it's difficult to visit there without feeling ironic about it. I think it's difficult. I think it's problematic. But the Zionist idea what I'm trying to share with you here is not just its political agenda, but its very DNA, its thinking about how we understand the world is rooted in this notion of negating the diaspora. I'm going to give you one other example, which is quite a troubling one. It's quite a painful one. And if you're familiar with it, you will be able to share in my pain. But Jewish thinkers, Zionist thinkers, particularly this kicks in in Eastern Europe in the 30s, and in the 40s, and it becomes very powerful in Israel in the 50s and the 60s. They came up with the idea that Zionism wasn't just about bringing the Jewish people to the land of Israel, but it was about emptying out the Jewish person, the anthropos, that's why I'm calling it Zionist anthropology, of its diasporic nature. Zionist movement came up with the idea of there being an old Jew who's a diasporic Jew and a new Jew, right? I don't know if any of you remember at the entrance to Yad Vashem before they redesigned it, or maybe you've seen it in the Warsaw Ghetto, there's the Rappaport um, portrayal of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising and the fighters of the Warsaw Ghetto uprising. Are you familiar with that picture? It's a very, very, very famous image. But what you see in the image, on the one side, you see Jews, and they have got talitot over their heads. They've got hooked noses, right? They're holding sifrei Torah in their hands. They're hunched over, right? If I didn't know the artist was Jewish, I would have thought it was anti-Semitic, right? They're hunched over. They, they look as if they're speaking Yiddish and they smell of kugel, right? And you see them plodding along, and of course, it's clear that they're heading, they're heading towards the gas chamber. But next to them, you have a portrayal of the new Jews, right? And of course, the characters, we're talking about Anilevich and the like, but we're looking at these new born-again Jews, not born-again Jews in that sense. I've forgotten where I am. Not, not that sense. These new Jews have come into a new being. And they are Greek Adonis figures. They have curly hair, 
right? They have curly hair and the blurit, right? The blonde, the blonde hair hanging over their foreheads and the eyes are looking up to the skies and they've got muscles bulging on their arms and the veins are sticking out in their necks and in their hands. They're holding guns and hand grenades and they look like these tremendous heroes. And these are the new Jews. These are the new Jews. And it's not just a matter of their, their bringing a new future to the Jewish people. Which, by the way, in terms of the, of the history of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising is totally disproportionate. You go into a classroom in Israel and ask people how many German soldiers were killed in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Right? Oh, 5,000, 10,000, 23,000. Does anybody know? Anybody know? 18. 18, yeah. So we have this sense, you know, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising in Israel has this tremendous symbolic significance because Israeli society can't deal with its own diasporic history. How come we didn't fight back? So there's a phrase in Israel which is really quite common, which is you can take the Jew out of the diaspora. But can you take the diaspora out of the Jew? Right, that's a phrase that you can hear particularly in the rhetoric of the 50s and the 60s, right? It is, it, but it's, what I'm trying to share with you is that it's part of the DNA of the Zionist idea. The Zionist idea has a fundamental problem with the continuation, the perpetuation, the flourishing, and the development of Jewish life in the diaspora, not just because diaspora Jews don't come to Israel, settle in Israel, participate in building the state of Israel, and in so doing, bring about the solution to the great Jewish question. But because fundamentally, the Zionist idea negated the notion of diaspora. So, does Zionism have a future in America? As I've presented it so far, my answer is uncategorically, unquestionably, absolutely not. Not a chance, because the ideas are anomalous. However, oh, don't destroy my my rhetoric. I'm just about to turn that one around. I'm just about to turn that one around. The question is, of course, thank you very much. You're absolutely right. The question is, the truth is, yes, there was a consensus. The truth is that there was a consensus. This was absolutely the dominant voice. And the people in the Zionist movement who tried to articulate a different vision for Zionism were really, really shouted down. Their voice was drowned out. It really was not heard for all sorts of reasons, but predominantly because the people who were involved in building the state of Israel were the ones who had themselves chosen to negate their own diasporic histories. They had to change their names. Right? To this day, by the way, if you, reach a if you reach a certain rank in the Israeli army, you have to change your name. You, can't, you have to have a Hebrew name. I've got a good friend, Muli Brog. Right? My friend, Muli Brog. Brog is, 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 is it's his Polish father's name, Brog. Right? His brother, Ehud Brog, when he reached a high rank in the army, had to change his name from Brog to Barak. Right? Barak, that's Israeli. But Muli Borg and Ehud Barak are brothers because you have to change, you had to change your name. You have to Israelize your name, Hebrewize your name. But the, this voice was drowned out, I think, very much because of that. But this voice was also drowned out because after the news started to hit 
the, the Zionist movement in the 1940s of what was going on in Europe, the notion of a future in the diaspora seemed impossible, despite the fact that American Jewish thinkers, American Jewish Zionists, who had an entirely different experience, were arguing for, well, maybe there should be another Zionism. Maybe there's another idea that can be compelling as a Zionist idea that doesn't involve this stark negation of diasporic Jewish life. So I would, like to, I would like to suggest that there is another voice. I'm going to make two claims now in the, time that I have, in the time that I have left. I've got about 20 minutes, right? Is that, yeah? In the time that I have left, I'd like to make, I've presented the problem. In the time that I have left, I'd like to make two, I'd like to, I'd like to put two ideas on the table, okay? Idea number one is that there is another voice in Zionist thought. Okay, there are actually multiple voices in Zionist thought, but I'd like to share this one in particular with you because I think it has a special status in terms of its understanding of this relationship between diaspora and Zionism. Okay, that's the first point that I want to make, and that's what the handout is all about. But the second thing that I want to do is I want to argue that in today's world, I'm going to be very contemporary, in today's world, this new voice has got a critical role to play in addressing the fundamental questions of the Jewish world and of re-engaging American Jews, particularly the younger ones, with the idea of the state of Israel. Okay? Now, it, it has a critical reason, it has a critical role to play, and I want to see it revived and rejuvenated but it has a critical role to play for two fundamental reasons. The first is that many, many Jews in the diaspora today are prospering. And not only are they prospering, they're developing Jewish lives. Some are assimilating, many are assimilating, I won't deny it. But they're developing prosperous Jewish lives that do not need to engage with Israel. That's the fundamental problem number one. Fundamental problem number two with applying the old Zionist model is that I believe that the old Zionist model, with this, with this notion that negates diaspora, is also preventing Israeli society in many ways from confronting its own internal challenges in terms of achieving a settlement in the Middle East. So I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say just a little bit about that because that's a theme I'm talking about on all sorts of other occasions during my time here. But I want to focus, I want to focus on, on those issues. But let's start by looking at the handout, okay? So, pull out the piece of paper, the pieces of paper that you have in front of you. And I'd like to have, I'd like to have a, I'd like to give you a little taste, a little taste. Those of you who are really interested in this, we're doing a breakfast session, I think, where these kinds of issues will be explored in more detail. But I'd like to give you a little taste of an alternative Zionist voice. Now the people that we're talking about are indeed, and they do think of themselves as belonging roughly speaking to the camp of Achad Ha'am, who sought for the state of Israel to provide a cultural center for the Jewish world. But I think, I think um, with all due respect to Achad Ha'am, I think that the, the people I want to look at now are just that little bit more sophisticated than Achad Ha'am. And they're offering, I think, a very complex and a very rich picture of what I would like to call an apolitical Zionism or a non-political.
non-political Zionism. So let's, let's have a taste of what this non-political Zionism would be. It's got, this type of Zionism has got many, many spokesmen. Some might not even usually be thought of as Zionist thinkers. But I'd like, to, I'd like to start and give you a taste by looking at two. I've picked out two who I think deserve special attention. They are Franz Rosenzweig and Gershom Scholem. Okay, so let's have a look at some short passages from the writings of Franz Rosenzweig and Gershom Scholem and see, see what we can glean. Okay, so whenever a people, you with me? Franz Rosenzweig from the Star of Redemption. Kochav HaGeula. Whenever a people loves the soil of its native land more than its own life, it is in danger. As all the peoples of the world are, that, though nine times out of ten, this love will save the native soil from the foe and, along with it, the life of the people. In the end, the soil will persist as that which was loved more strongly. Don't be confused. This is not Rosenzweig saying we don't care about the soil. And the people will leave their lifeblood upon it. In the final analysis, the people belong to him who conquers the land. It cannot be otherwise, because people cling to the soil more than to their life as a people. Thus, the earth betrays a people that entrusted its permanence to earth. The soil endures the people who live on it pass. That's quite a complex little twist that he presents to us there in this passage. Don't be confused when you read Rosenzweig. He's not saying land is less important than people. He's also not saying people are less important than land. He's talking about the nature and the duration of two fundamental and separate components of a national identity. On the one hand, one of the things that defines a national identity is its people, right? That makes sense. These people have a collective sense of who they are. And their collective sense of who they are can be expressed in all sorts of national institutions, from language to flag to army to government to all sorts. But these people in Rosenzweig's, in Rosenzweig's portrayal of them have a very profound and a very deep sense of their collective purpose. That's one side of the equation. The other side of the equation for Rosenzweig is the notion that a national people also has a national land. And this national land, an idea that Rosenzweig lifts from classical rabbinic Jewish literature, this land has a life of its own. So we somehow have this, this dual and complex relationship between a people that has a purpose and a land that has a purpose. The land, in some perhaps anthropomorphic way, the land needs to prosper. The land needs to grow. The land needs to develop. The land has a purpose. The people need to prosper. The people need to grow. The people have a purpose. 
When we combine the people and the land exclusively, Rosenzweig says, then the people will make choices. And they'll become so infatuated with the notion of their connection to the land that the infatuation over the connection to the land will destroy ultimately both the land and the people. Now, you've got to remember that Rosenzweig is writing this way before the whole contemporary political issues over land and sovereignty and, and, and compromise over land surfaced. This is not a political statement about what to do in order to solve the Palestinian problem. What Rosenzweig is talking about is the notion of a fundamental relationship between a people and a land that is not defined exclusively by the sovereignty of that people over the land. Now, you can imagine that in the Zionist movement in the 30s and in the 40s, this was not a popular idea. What do you mean? We're going to live in the land and we're not all going to live in the land and the issue won't necessarily be sovereignty over the land? What are you talking about? The whole point of Zionism is in order for the Jewish people to establish sovereignty over the land. Rosenzweig had a subtle idea. He had a different understanding. He believed in a connection between a people and its land that didn't necessarily have to be consummated in sovereignty. The idea that the Jewish people could be connected to the land of Israel, have a relationship with that land, care about that land, and draw their sense of destiny from the destiny of that land. For Rosenzweig, the language is very much a holy land and a holy people. A holy land and a holy people can be very, very fundamentally connected to each other in diaspora. 2,000 years of Jewish history are a testimony to that. Rosenzweig's Zionism was rooted in the notion that the relationship between the land and the people could be enhanced if the people had access to that land. Not necessarily sovereignty over it. And not necessarily a negation of those who didn't choose to live on it. But access to that land, the idea of pilgrimage comes to mind. Is there a place that we're connected to that's important to us, that when we touch it, when, we're, when, when we visit it, it gives us a sense of our collective purpose? I'm going to talk in a second about what that collective purpose might be. Yes, go ahead, please ask. Yes. That's, that's exactly the point that he's ironizing. He doesn't want the people to lose its freedom to conquest. Rosenzweig is, is arguing against the notion of a political or a military conquest of the land. His move inside the Zionist movement is to try and articulate a connection for the land that doesn't have the people belonging to the, people, to the, the one who conquers the land. It's precisely the point. It's, called, it's an apolitical notion of a relationship with the land. The conquest of the land will create ownership over the people. And that's precisely, you could argue, what has happened. In other words, the conquest of the land, if we look at it historically, has created a new identity. And that new identity is not a Jewish identity so much as it's an Israeli identity. And that Israeli identity has become 
very, very self-contained and very, very powerful in and of itself to the extent that many Israeli Jews are alienated from the rest of the Jewish world. And that's precisely the point that I think Rosenzweig is, is, is predicting here, is seeing here, and is trying to, and is trying to point out. So the question, the, question, the question is, can we talk about a connection with a land that isn't defined exclusively by political sovereignty? That's, that's the idea that Rosenzweig is, is putting on the table. Yes? I understand. I'm, I'm, I, would say, I would say two things. First of all, we're looking here at an, at an idea that's articulated before the conflict that you're talking about gets started. I'm not trying to look at Rosenzweig as a solution to the conflict. But I would wonder if the reason why you didn't have access to the Wailing Wall in the 1960s was because of the conquest of the land in 1948. Had you gone to the land of Israel in 1920s, would you have had access to the Wailing Wall? You would. And that's precisely the point that Rosenzweig is trying to make here. Okay? So, I mean, it's, it's subtle, it's complex, but, but I, think he's, I think he's touching on an irony that is, that is very compelling. Okay? Was there another hand? No. Okay, so let's have a quick, a quick taste, a quick look at, at Sholem, just to, just to get a sense of it, and then, and then we'll see, then we'll see where, where we're going to go with all of this. Two passages from Shalom here, separate essays, right? The Messianic idea in, Ju in Judaism and B'may Kamiflagi, or B'may Kamipalgi, which I'll translate for you when we get to it. Little wonder that overtones of Messianism have accompanied the modern Jewish readiness for irrevocable action in the concrete realm when it set out on the utopian return to Zion. This readiness no longer allows itself to be fed on hopes. Born out of the horror and destruction that was Jewish history in our own generation, it is bound to history itself and not to meta-history. It's complicated, I know, I'll explain. It has not given itself up totally to messianism. Whether or not Jewish history will be able to endure this entry into the concrete realm without perishing in the crisis of the messianic claim, which has virtually been conjured up, that is the question which out of his great and dangerous past, the Jews of this age pays, poses to his present and to his future. Now, I know that's a little abstract, but I'm going to make it very clear. Is it clear? It is clear? I, people are nodding and people are shaking. I'm going to make it very clear. Let me make it very clear. And then we'll read it again so as you see that I'm not making it up. Jews have been sitting around the Seder table for thousands of years saying, L'shana haba'a b'yushalayim. Right? L'shana haba'a b'yushalayim. Next year in Jerusalem. 
And in my family, when we were kids, we finished the Seder night and everyone's dropping to sleep and we're exhausted and we'd had four cups of wine and our stomachs were full of my mother's kinedelach. And all you want to do is sleep, right? But by the time you finish the Seder night, you wake up and you get off the table, you get away from the table and you start dancing around. That's what we did when we were kids. We danced around the table and we sang, Lashana Habab Yushalayim, Lashana Habab Yushalayim. You know what? That's what my grandfather did. And that's what my great-grandfather did. And that's what my great-great-grandfather did. And that's what my great-great-great-grandfather did. It's a family tradition. There's only one big difference between my generation and my great-great-grandfather's generation. Well, there's more. They wore funny clothes. But, but, and snuff. <laughs> For some reason, snuff didn't make it to my time. It looks great fun. Anyway. <laughs> In my great-great-grandfather's day... Running around, dancing around the table and seeing the Shana Habab Yushalayim did not mean for a second that he was going to get up and move house and settle in Jerusalem the following year. It was, it was ridiculous. In 1985, at my family's Seder table, we had a big hug and a big kiss and lots of tears because when we sang Lishana Haba Yushalayim, my parents knew that by this time next year, that's exactly what I was going to do because I settled in Israel in 1986. It's a fundamentally different experience of what it is to sing Lishana Haba Yushalayim. Now let's look at the two sides of that coin because it's complex. The normal side of the coin that you're all familiar with and which I celebrate, by the way, do not misunderstand me. I'm a Zionist. The side of the coin that we all celebrate is, hey, look at this. My great-great-grandfather would have given an arm and a leg to be able to do what I can do, which is to sing the Shana Babi Ushalayim and get up and actually do it. That's political Zionism. But is there a price that I pay for doing that? That's the price that Sholem calls the concretization of messianism. It's making a messianic ideal into a concrete reality. Now, what's the price that I pay for that? Think about my great-great-great-grandfather, who lived some, somewhere or other in Lithuania. I can actually tell you exactly. He lived in a village called Kretingen in Lithuania. And my great-great-great-grandfather, who had absolutely no intention of going anywhere and who spent his whole life living in the same place, had a fundamentally different understanding of messianism from the one that I have. For me, messianism was, I'm going to get up and go. I'm going to make it happen. For him, the messianic ideal was something that was really special in the culture of the Jewish people, Livriyut. Bless you. The Jewish people's messianic ideal taught them for generation after generation after generation, where I am now is not ideal. I don't have access to a perfect life. That's the consciousness of diaspora. That consciousness of diaspora is actually a very powerful, humbling, restraining idea. Think how dangerous it... My father always used to say to me when I was a kid, Alec, he had a Scottish accent, Alec. Watch out for the man with the answer. Don't believe a word he says. Never believe the person with the perfect answer. Right? That's what Huxley wrote The Brave New World all about. 
Don't believe the perfect answer. Don't believe the concretization of messianism. There's something very deep in the Jewish consciousness of the imperfection of our own existence. There's something temporary about our own existence. We, we have this sense of there's something better around the corner. There's an optimism and a humility about the conditions of my own existence that are implied by the Jewish messianic idea. Now, if you don't see where I'm going yet, I'll make it very explicit. The concretization of messianism leads to a loss of this subtle experience of our own temporary, impartial, sorry, partial, broken sense of where we are in the world. On the one hand, let's look at this from two sides of the coin. In Israel, it's very frightening. We can talk about a Jewish life here. We're making the reality come true. This is a messianic reality, and we can therefore reject all of the alternatives. That's the negation of the diaspora. It's the concretization of messianism. The other side of the coin, the other side of the coin is the, the side of the coin that says if messianism has been, has been concretized over there, I can concretize it over here too. This is where I can create an ideal sense of where I am. Because, because the mystifying vision of an alternative life has been demystified by its concretization in the form of a substantive state. What I'm suggesting here is precisely the, the problem that I began trying to present to you which is this notion of how the negation of the diaspora creates a fundamental rift between Jewish life in Israel and Jewish life in the diaspora. If Zionism is going to have a future in America, Zionism has to have a future in Israel. And if Zionism is going to have a future in Israel, or if any idea is going to have a future in Israel, it cannot dare, according to Sholem, I'm still quoting Sholem here, it cannot dare idealize itself because that kind of concretization is very dangerous. When we talk about l'shana haba Yerushalayim, right? That's like saying manana. Right? It'll happen tomorrow. We have this vision of a future that undermines our sense of self-satisfaction with, with the present. It gives us something, it gives us something to perpetually question us. It gives us something to perpetually strive for, to remain that, just that little bit unstable. So let's ha just have a look at the text with me again. Little wonder that overtones of messianism have accompanied the modern Jewish readiness for irrevocable action in the concrete realm when it set out on the utopian return to Zion. Shalom is criticizing the Zionist movement for being utopian. He's criticizing it for concretizing utopia and in, thus, and in so doing for negating the idea of diaspora. Not diaspora, Jews living outside the land of Israel, but the diasporic consciousness of Jews living in the land of Israel. Can the Jews settling in the land of Israel remember the lessons of Jewish history learned in diaspora? That's the question that Shalom is, is, is asking. This readiness no longer allows itself to be fed on hopes. Is it making more sense now? 
born out of the horror and destruction that was Jewish history in our own generation, it is bound to history itself and not to meta-history. We've got problems now and we want to solve them. We don't have this vision of a meta-history, which is something to hope for, something to dream of. It has not given itself up totally to messianism. In other words, it hasn't accepted the notion of messianism as something which transcends. Whether or not Jewish history will be able to endure this entry into the concrete realm without perishing in the crisis of the messianic claim, which has virtually been conjured up, that's the question that we need to deal with. Do you get it now? Is it clearer? No? Who said no? I can't do any better than that. Yeah, go ahead. Shalom, so far. Yes. This is precisely the point that I would like to suggest. I think you've overstated it a little. You've taken it further than I would want to take it. But the idea that Israel is just another diaspora is, I think, to play, is to deflate the balloon just that little bit too much. I still want it to fly. But the idea that I have in mind is if Israel can preserve and think of itself with a diasporic consciousness, right? And American Jewry or Judaism in the diaspora, can on the one hand connect with that diasporic consciousness, and I want to make this very explicit, while at the same time experiencing the redemption that Israel is all about. If instead of creating a stark redemption, rejection of, of diaspora versus rejection of redemption, perpetuation of diaspora, and never the twain shall meet, and two communities on different trajectories will never, will never have a sense of their, of their shared purpose, if we can have a more partial, a more broken sense of what the state of Israel is really all about and what it's trying to accomplish and how far it still has to go before it can ever dare to talk of itself in, redempt, in, in redeemed terms, right? If we can talk about the state of Israel in those terms and talk about the Zionist idea in those terms, then the Zionist idea is, is compelling. It has a future and it can continue to mean something even in the diaspora. Now, that's all very high and philosophical. You're going you're gonna to ask me, and very rightly so, how do you make that make sense to a younger generation? And that's where, that's where I, reach my, I reach my conclusions. I want to argue as follows. That Zionism is an ideology. Okay? Now, we don't like the word ideology, because ideology is a word that gives us a sense of um, blindedness, bigotry, you know, you're ideological. It means that you don't, you don't see, you don't have an open-minded view of the world. You're blinkered. You've got a template that you apply to everything and it explains everything. People who talk about ideology in those terms are probably right, by the way. But there's one mistake. Ideology looks like that when you apply it to your description of the present. You become blinkered. But when ideology is about your vision for the future, 
and for a, a better future. What ideology does is it becomes the foundation, not of your idealization of the present, it becomes the foundation of your critique of the present. Look at Zionist history. Zionist history came up with the idea, we want to go and live there. We want to build a Jewish state there. But that idea was, we're not happy with what's going on here. We have a critique. The problem becomes when we use ideology to say, this is perfect. That's the concretization of messianism that Shalom is talking about. We lose our critical faculties. Now, there is a tremendous crisis in the Jewish world today. There's a tremendous crisis in the American Jewish community today. And I've just participated in a fascinating three-day-long conference that was all about this. And we heard this over and over and over and over again, that people are scared to talk seriously about Israel. People are scared to criticize Israel, because if you do that, you're a traitor, right? But also, people are scared in some places in, Israel, in American society to be supportive of Israel. Because if you do that, then you're a fascist occupying all sorts of other things that you can hear. Both positions are wrong. They're not wrong in and of themselves, but they're wrong because they silence the discussion. The Zionist idea is the idea today the Zionist idea is the idea today. I will follow this non-political vision of Zionism that is articulated by people like Rosenzweig, Sholem, and many others. The Zionist idea is the idea that says we have a non-perfect vision. We have a non-perfect sense of what our life is like. We have a non-perfect sense of what the state of Israel is like. And we have a collective dream of making our future more meaningful, of making our lives, of dedicating our lives to the accomplishment of something that is meaningful. Now this idea that the Jewish people has a purpose, that the Jewish people is, a, is here on this world to accomplish something, that we have a special identity, that we have, we have a, at least it's special to us. I don't want to create national hierarchies here. But it's special to us. Special to me. And we want to engage in that. And because we want to talk about it, and because we want to debate it, we are implicated by everything that happens in the Jewish world. Where is the Jewish people going is a question that Jewish people should be waking up and asking themselves. The state of Israel is the most incredible platform for asking that exciting question. We live in a generation where Judaism has become the foundational culture for a new society with lots of problems. Let's talk about them. Let's engage in them. Let's feel implicated by them. They affect me. That's my people. In order for American Jews to be able to embrace that question, Israeli Jews have to turn around and say Zionism is not about the negation of the diaspora. The state of Israel is not a negation of everything in Jewish history that came before us. The state of Israel is not an ideal society. The state of Israel has a tremendous amount to learn from Jewish history and from the contemporary Jewish experiences of other Jewish people trying to give Jewish life Jewish meaning in the context of their lives. Let's talk about it. 
And if there was a serious and an engaging conversation of that sort, that participating in that conversation was part of what it means to be a Jew, then Zionism has a future in America. If the Zionist idea will address the American, the American Jewish community and involve them in the debate about where Israel is going, and vice versa, if the American Jewish community will at long last feel entitled to participate in the debate and in the discussion, because the Zionist state is not just about Israeli democracy, it's about a Jewish idea for the Jewish future. And every Jew in the world has a say in that. You don't necessarily have a say in who's going to be, you know, the municipal head of sports in the Jerusalem municipality, right? But you do have a say in the culture of the Jewish world. Can we articulate visions? Can we ask ourselves what ideas about a Jewish world with a Jewish state in it are inspiring because we know that our lives are partial. There's one thing I can't bear, it's the apathy of people who say, I've got it, everything's great. How can that be possible? We're Jews in a world that is so full of injustice and suffering. And on top of that, we all know we're gonna die anyway, so we, it can't be great. Like, it's, a down, it's a downhill thing we're all on here. Downhill ride, right? We, fun, we have fundamental questions of meaning. And what I'm suggesting, in a nutshell, is that the state of Israel is one of the critical platforms in which the question of what it means to be a Jew in the world today is being played out. That is a question that addresses Jews in Israel. It's a question that addresses Jews in the diaspora. And it's a question that both must address to themselves and to each other. That sense of belonging, if we can make it happen, then there's a future for Zionism in America, and there's a future for Zionism in Israel. Today, there is neither Zionism in America or in Israel. Don't kid yourselves. There is no Zionism in Israel today. People don't talk about Zionism in Israel today. Where are we going? I'm one of these hardline Zionists. I want, it, I want the Zionist debate up and, and running. What's the purpose of this country? Where is it going? What's it going to do for the Jewish world? Now, I just want to say one final little thing. One final little comment. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm not going to develop this significantly. But one little point, which is to say that the Jewish sense of diaspora. I'm just going to hint at something here. I'm not going to develop it. If you want to hear it developed, then there are other sessions at which I will talk about this in much more detail. But the Jewish sense of of of, of diaspora, which is the Jewish sense of messianism, not concretized. That sense of there is a better, there is a better future, and our world is partial. Our world is a world of struggling. Our world is a world of striving. That kind of Jewish spiritualism, whether you think of it in religious or in humanistic secular terms, is critical to building a mentality that is sensitive to the suffering of others. Now, I am not saying anything political about how the land of Israel should or should not be divided and what the political solution would be and is there a Palestinian partner and what about the Iranian bomb. I don't, I'm not talking about that right now. I'm not addressing that issue right now. There are lots of political positions on those issues. But I want to tell you 
that inside Israeli society there is not enough sensitivity to the problem itself. Whatever your position is on how the problem should be solved, if it can be solved, and who knows if it can, but whatever your position is on that issue, that's the politics that goes from the, light, the, the left to the right. I'm stepping back from a sec for a second. And I'm saying, how come the simple human sensitivity to the suffering of other people, whether they are Jewish or non-Jewish inside the state of Israel, is absent? Believe it or not, my argument is not because... Not because Zionism is strong in the state of Israel and we have a strong sense of purpose. My argument is that because Zionism is weak. If we were to strengthen our understanding of what Zionism was really all about, defining a purpose for the Jewish people in the world, I think we would look more sensitively at the rest of the world and engage honestly with the pain that having to find a solution to the problems in the state of Israel should cause us. That doesn't mean that I think the answer is one side of the political spectrum or the other. I kind of fluctuate between them both. But the sensitivity itself, that's what it is to remember. When you're living in a Jewish state, that you were strangers in the land of Egypt. That consciousness is the key to a Zionist future in the state of Israel. And by the same token, to a compelling message, an invitation to participate in Zionism here in the United States. Thank you very, very much. Questions? Not just Palestinians, not just Palestinians. Thing, and that's, that's 
Okay, so let, let me respond very briefly because I want to um, respond to other questions as well, but I'll say very briefly. First of all, I don't, don't misunderstand me. Israeli society is wonderful. I love, the, I love living in Israel. I love Israeli society, and I'm very, very proud of all sorts of things that Israeli society does. Go into any Israeli hospital, go, go look at Magen David Adom, look at Haiti. The examples are, are, are all over the place. It's absolutely true. However, primarily, fundamentally, if you ask the question, what are the political objectives of most people in Israeli society? society when they look at how to how to deal with the issues that we know we're both talking about the answer is we want to put an end to Palestinian terrorism right that's the fundamental and the dominant issue right the the, the questions of what is actually going on inside the Palestinian societies in Israel whether you are left wing or right wing it doesn't make any difference the question is do you see is there knowledge? Is there sensitivity? Is there basic knowledge of Arabic? Is there basic knowledge? Or do people know the names of the villages that they drive past every day in between, in between the, 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 the names of the Jewish places that they do know, etc., etc., etc.? There's an incredible blindness. There's an incredible insensitivity. There is an incredible inability to see. Now, how you interpret what you see, how you respond to what you see, and how you deal with what you see is one thing. But the question of are you seeing, is there sensitivity, are people visible in Israeli society? The same thing goes, by the way, not, it's not just a question of the Palestinians. It's a question of refugees inside Israeli society. It's a question of, of, of Ethiopian olim inside Israeli society. Let's get honest. I live there. I love Israel. And because I love Israel, just like I love my children, I can't idealize them or it. Israeli society is not ideal. It has problems. It has fundamental bigotries and chauvinisms in it. Let's talk about them because that's the way we'll be able to embrace them and do something about them. I don't see that as disloyal. I see that as an expression of my love for Israel, a country that I've put my life on the line for on several occasions. So that's a fundamental, that's a fundamental um, first statement. The second thing that I would say, and I think you've raised, you've, you've, you've epitomized the point that I was trying to make. What you just did was to articulate back to me a, a, a classic articulation of political Zionism. And the narrative that you're describing at the moment is very, very powerful. It's very powerful. It's very compelling. Historically, it's been very powerful and very compelling. And I hear your Australian accent, and particularly in the Australian Jewish community, which is a survivor community, it's a very, very powerful and compelling voice there. But guess what? Even in Melbourne and Sydney, and not to mention Orange County and Los Angeles and New York and, and other places around the world, the younger generation isn't thinking in those terms because they don't experience their Jewish lives as threatened. And the historical message of, but your grandparents' lives were threatened, is not a compelling enough reason for them to, to engage genuinely and seriously with Israel. Don't take my word for it. The sociological research in the Jewish communities around the world that supports this argument is absolutely overwhelming. Jews are disengaging with Israel. Not just teenagers, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds. People are disengaging with Israel because Israel doesn't challenge them. It dis it's distant from them. It doesn't invite them. It turns its back on them. So I think that the, the classic argument that has been compelling for a long time is not compelling anymore. I'm, I might agree with you, I don't, but I could agree with you that I would like it to be. But it isn't. And I think that we have to, I think we have to reevaluate on those terms and respond seriously to the new realities that we're living in. So we might disagree on that, but that, that's, that's legitimate. That's fine. Yes, go ahead. Hello, Sarah. Nice to meet you. I'm Alec. 
And he didn't like that? <laughs> Sounds great to me. <laughs> I didn't ask you that. Where it rains a lot. I, I, I was trying to avoid those kinds of practical those kinds of practical questions. What I was what I was talking about when I was talking about diaspora was not just the presence of Jews living in the diaspora. What I'm talking about is the idea of a diasporic consciousness. And even Jews living inside the state of Israel have a diasporic consciousness. And in the same way, Jews living outside of the state of Israel, like yourself, are, can be examples of people who have an Israeli-oriented, and like yourself, who have a powerfully Israeli-oriented consciousness as well. And the question is, how do we create that kind of duality where we don't have a sense of redeemed and diasporic, but something that is much more, that is much more conversational between the two? Inevitably, what that would involve would be a, a perpetuation of Jewish life in the diaspora. But I don't say that because I design it. I, I say that because I think that's the reality. And then the question is, how do we draw on that reality in meaningful ways? And it, I think it goes beyond philanthropic support and political lobbying. I'm talking about internally within the Jewish consciousness. Let's stop thinking in power terms. We'll protect you. We'll provide you with funding. Let's talk on, on, in spiritual terms. What does it mean to have a diasporic consciousness? Yes. It's dealt with very interestingly before the destruction of the temple. Um, there are significant debates and discussions. Well, before the destruction of the temple is a little bit... I, if you mean before the destruction of the first temple, then no. Before the destruction of the second temple, we have, we, have, we have less literature about this than the literature that comes a little bit later, okay? But if, if we look in the period of the time of the Mishnah, right? In the time of the Mishnah, which is, of course, after the destruction of the second temple, but it is a time where Jews are still... There's a very significant intellectual center of Jewish life, particularly in the Galilee. Right? I don't know if you know, but in the time of the Bar Kokhba revolt in 132 CE, there was a huge revolt, revolt against the Romans, and the Jews of the Galilee didn't participate. So Hadrian gave them 
the, the, the license to settle and prosper in the Galilee in a very, very prosperous Jewish community developed in the Galilee. And they produced the Talmud Yerushalmi and the Midrash and so on and so forth. At the same time, there were very, very strong Jewish communities in Babylon. Right? And, and over the same time period, the 4th and the 5th centuries, we're, we're looking at the articulations of, I'm saying articulations because they weren't written down, but of the Babylonian Jewish liter literature, the Talmud Bavli. Okay? Now, in this period of Bavli and Yerushalmi, these two Jewish communities are debating with each other over who, who has, who has, a, who has the, the primary claim to, if you've got a two-legged Jewish community, which one has the primary claim? And of course, the struggle is we're in the land of Israel, and because we're in the land of Israel, we are sanctified by the presence in the land of Israel, which gives us all sorts of theological entitlements which is one side of the coin. And the Bavli side of the coin is we're in, we're in Babylon. This is the major center of Jewish learning in the Jewish world today. And for that reason, the spirit of God has come, the Shekhinah has come with us in exile to Babylon because God chooses the Bet Midrash over the land of Israel. Right? And these are two ideologies that come into play in many, many stories that play out in, in the Tanaitic literature and in the early Amoraic literature. Right? But to compare those two tensions right, with, with the question of, with the question of a, a Zionist ideology in a diasporic world, a lot of people have tried to do it. I think it's a little bit anachronistic. So it's a, it's, a, it's a different situation. It's a different situation. It's a different, it's a different kind of tension. But there clearly is a long history of Jews in the land of Israel and Jews outside of the land of Israel arguing over their qualitative status. So I don't know if I've really answered your question, but I've given you a taste of how the issue is a long, a long-historied one and not, and not just a fresh one. Thank you very, very much, everybody.